I love it. <laughs> we are live. We are live. Doug, how are you, man? I'm good. It's great to be here. Thank you. You know, this is a huge honor to be invited for your your season finale. So thank you. This will be fun. Absolutely. It will be fun. And uh, I tweeted out that uh, we weren't sure what to, to wear, whether to go formal or informal. So we decided so to we, do both. Yeah. So we've got our shirts on, yeah. sporting, and then our sport coats too. So I'm wearing shorts, <laughs> shorts and Tevas. So uh, I will not pan shorts, the camera down. For me, shorts yeah. and bare feet. So yeah, yeah, there you go. It's summer. It's summer. Well, Doug, uh, you and I know each other. We've, we've had uh, the opportunity to run into each other at various conferences over the years. And I'm suspecting that most of the people who are going to tune in today are, uh, are familiar with you as well. Uh, but why don't you just take a quick moment to introduce yourself yeah. and uh, tell uh, folks uh, a little about yourself and, and maybe something they don't know about you. Something they don't know. Okay, so what they probably do know and what I can tell them is I'm one third of the co-hosts on the War on Cars podcast. I'm also an advocate. People might know me online as uh, Brooklyn Spoke. So obviously I live in Brooklyn, New York. I've been involved in advocacy surrounding safe streets for a long time. Uh, I started the blog in 2010, but I'd been involved in advocacy before that. My day job for a long time was uh, TV production and writing. So I've written stuff for PBS, for Nova, The Science Show, uh, for the History Channel, Discovery, National Geographic, various other networks. So that's sort of my like professional background. And I have this, you know, side interest that's now not really my side interest in urban planning, better cities, safe streets, sustainability, things like that. Something that people don't know about me. Okay. Um, I, this this will be a good one. I actually got a callback for the touring company and and Broadway cast of Rent back in 1998. The Atlanta production I was living in Atlanta at the time was coming through, and I was actually working for the theater that uh, was hosting. I was doing marketing. It was my first job out of college, and um, I was talking to the casting director who was there. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd done some theater in high school, sort of the way that a lot of people have done theater in high school, but I really loved it. And uh, they said, yeah, you should, why don't you come by? And so I did it and I got a call back in uh, and they invited me to come back again. Didn't get the part. My life might've gone in a totally different direction had it had I gotten the part, but that's that's maybe like a, the one weird, cool fact about me. Um, had this little brush with Broadway, Broadway work, I should say, if not a career. Fantastic. That's yeah. That's a, that's a lot of fun. And I guess so you know, if, we get, if you get me drunk in this podcast, uh, in this episode, I'll start singing. So yeah, <laughs> that's good stuff. So uh, so you did mention uh, you know the podcast, uh, the, yeah. the War on Cars, and let's let's pull up the website uh, for for the War on Cars. And the way that the website is is really s sort of set up is right when you go to the landing page, you're able to scroll through the different uh, episodes and mm -hmm. and the most recent episode, which was fantastic, by the way. Marley Thanks. is so wonderful. And, and so folks, can you can scroll through and take a look at, at some of those. Uh, now, right now, the, the podcast is just audio only, but uh, you and I were talking before we uh, hit the uh, broadcast button that uh, maybe we'll get into video at some point in time. But uh, take a moment to, to talk a little bit about that journey to the podcast. And let's also take this opportunity to explain the reason for the name, The War on Cars. Yeah, let's start there. That's a good place to start. So as I'm sure people watching this understand, anytime you take so much as a single parking space for uh, 
a better bike lane, a better bus stop, an expanded sidewalk, a loading zone, whatever it is, you're accused of waging a war on cars. It doesn't matter if there's 100,000 parking spots, a million parking spots, 10 million parking spots in your city. You take one and you're accused of waging a war on cars. Um, Rob Ford, the former mayor of Toronto, he, when he was elected way back, um, he said that the war on cars uh, is over and he was going to end it. And so this is one of those things that sometimes gets misinterpreted, and that's fine. It's always a great topic for discussion, um, that we are not really waging a war on cars. It's a, we are the little kind of mice nipping at the at the heels of the elephants of car culture, and we and yet we are the ones accused of waging a war on cars. It's sort of like how you hear, uh, you know, the, if we just ask people to say happy holidays every now and then, it's a war on Christmas. Or, you know, gee, maybe women should have slightly more equality than they have now. Oh, gosh, it's a war on men. So it's sort of meant in that in that spirit. Um, and we've just decided to seize that title and that that phrase. And um, it's it's turned into sort of like a little fun catchphrase in a way, too. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and by the way, uh, folks who are, are tuning in, uh, if you are logged into your YouTube account, you can uh, put uh, your your chat uh, out there and, uh, and and be forewarned. I, I may pull your chat up and, and a cat with a face uh, uh, actually uh, said, oh, yes, the war on cars this is an interview I can get behind. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, a cat with a face. Uh, you've been on the broadcast before, and I really appreciate you tuning in. That is good stuff. So when we look back, how many years has it been now for the the podcast? We launched in the fall of 2018. Okay, fall of 2018. What's been the biggest learning thus far, um, you know, over that period of time and the the thing that surprises you the most? And then we'll we'll hone in on the last eight months and really talk about some of the the stuff that's been happening recently. Yeah, I mean, this also maybe kind of answers the earlier question you had about sort of the journey to the podcast. This is not a knock at any other podcast out there or anything like that. But in the urban planning space, we tend to dwell very much in very dry subject matter. Sometimes it can be very grim subject matter, you know, and necessarily so. This is literally a life and death situation for uh, in a lot of ways. And so we wanted to start a podcast that, yes, took a look at policy, but that also looked at cars as a cultural object. You know, there's the one arguably the most significant cultural object in North American culture, if not world culture. And so that was sort of the the initial thinking behind the podcast. Uh, I mean, I think for me, the biggest there's two answers to the learning piece of it. One is just literally the technical side of it, of like learning to be a better interviewer. I, like I said, I work in television production. I'm usually behind the camera. You don't see me in the final product. You don't hear my voice in the final product. So learning to be a good interviewer and really listen and answer questions, ask questions, um, has, has been a real, uh, a bit of a learning curve. I, I'd like to think I'm better at it than um, I probably think I am. Uh, but also it's really helped me think even more holistically about the problem of cars in society and in cities, that this isn't just a simple policy problem that we can switch with the right leadership. This isn't just a technical thing that, you know, if only the right planners were in place at, you know, city hall or, or, or department of public works. Um, it, like I said, cars are a cultural problem to be solved. And so it's really helped me link up 
the issue of of cycling, of walkability to to housing, to racial justice, to the environment, to all of these ways in which I think maybe let's say 10 years ago, 20 years ago, things were a bit more siloed and now they're not. And so that's good. That's been great for me personally. Many other people are farther ahead on this than I am, but um, I'd like to think I'm a lifelong learner. So that's been great for me. Yeah, I I can really appreciate that too, because, you know, my background is in in public health and, uh, and really trying to create places that help encourage healthy living, physical activity, things of that nature. And so uh, this has been just hugely (laughs) expansive for me just in the last five to 10 years of producing video content. uh, And then uh, with the pandemic pivoting and starting a podcast, and then very quickly, I shouldn't say very quickly, it took about a year, year and a half before I switched uh, from just audio only to uh, video and audio. And uh, for for those of you who are tuning in right now uh, on the audio version of this episode in like, probably give me about 18 hours to get that produced and out to you. You're probably wondering where it is right now. It's on its way, honest. <laughs> um, it, it's been a, a huge learning experience, and and but it's it's also been very, very gratifying. And what's so yeah. cool is just being able to connect with so many people around the world. And we've got uh, uh, Bert here, I see, you know, uh, says hello and, and is talking about the Dutch genes and, uh, and and many other folks that uh, that are out there. Uh, Jos, uh, just uh, uh, a past guest on the podcast. He is also just uh, oh, yeah, chimed, yeah. Yep. chimed in as well. So uh, also from the Netherlands. And uh, in fact, Jos is the uh, the the man behind the the driving force behind the international cargo bike festival one of these days i've been to the netherlands so many times and i've never been there for that and i have to correct that mistake so it's gonna happen for me it's gonna happen for me john you and i will we'll go we'll bunk up we'll go yeah yeah and i will be there uh this year uh again this year that is happening in the uh amsterdam area out by the airport wonderful exhibition center and that's going to happen on October 27th through 29th and Yos was so grateful or so gracious and he let me know today that I've got 20 passes uh, to be able to attend the the, the festival so uh, for those of you who are, are listening and and you plan on being in the Netherlands at that time or maybe you're from there I hope that's okay Yos <laughs> for me to, 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 to get some locals there too so uh, hit me up let me know and we'll get to the, the cargo bike festival uh, together. So one of the things I wanted to mention though, Doug, is that you also have like that other side of you too. And uh, when I say the other side of you, and you're, you're also out there helping move the needle forward um, and you're, you're doing some consulting work. Uh, so, so walk us through uh, the, the Brooklyn Sproke uh, media. Yeah. So I'm Brooklyn Spoke online. And a couple of years ago, I said, well, you know, I do this TV thing and a lot of what I do in television. You know, the thing that I do in TV is I'm a writer, I'm a storyteller, I'm a producer. And, you know, when you watch a half hour television show or an hour long television show, you know, 22 minutes or 44 minutes, essentially, you're taking these big, expansive ideas and you have to condense them down and you have to leave a lot of stuff out and you have to make sure the audience walks away understanding, you know, what the story is and how it resolved. And I, I noticed through the years, this is less true, you know, in some areas, more true in others, but that, you know, governments especially don't know how to tell the story of why they are changing a street. 
You can go to a meeting and you can say, look, X number of people have died on the street, Y number of people have been injured, but those are just dry statistics. You need to weave a story around it. So I was like, okay, well, I'm pretty good at my television job, I like to think, and I love this advocacy side of things. Why don't I combine these two interests? And so I started this consulting group uh, and I've done some video production. The one that you see up there, it was for Super Pedestrian for Link Scooters when they were launching some stuff and hoping to launch uh, in the Northeast. I've done some safety videos for them. And um, I find that, you know, we, we really, storytelling is such a hugely important piece of what, you know, what you do, what I do, what every advocate in this space does. You have to create a compelling story for why we should change the status quo. And without that, changing the status quo is nearly impossible. So yeah, I've been doing some consulting with lots of different people, doing a video for a county out in New Jersey that's doing some tactical urbanism type experimentations, just documenting that with video. But also every now and then I'll just consult with people on sort of documents that they're putting together, uh, websites that they're putting together. Um, what's the proper language to describe this stuff to you know, normal people who aren't uh, immersed in it in the way that we are. You know, you and I hear something like, wait, you're going to take away a lane of traffic, from, of car traffic, and somehow the traffic is going to smooth, you know, flow more smoothly, and you can put a bike lane there, and that won't jam things up. Like, we understand that intuitively, but it's not an intuitive concept for most people. And so um, I have found both with the podcast, with my consulting concern and you know just i think with my social media feed of like explaining things so they resonate with regular people and make sense you know induced demand is a really great idea you're going to widen the highway and it's going to lead to more traffic How, that doesn't make any sense like that that doesn't make any more sense if i have more people in my house and i buy a bigger house then we all have more room well you know so being able to um, describe that visually, to explain that to people has been a big part of what I do. So yeah, I, I've worked with some uh, private mobility companies, uh, county county and city governments and, and individual groups as well. So I'm looking at your website here and I'm noticing that that looks like it's a live uh, video. What, what would happen if I actually press that? Uh, you would see a little video that I did for Super Pedestrian already now, like about a year and a half ago. Shall yeah. we? Sure, go for it. Now it's uh, it's more visual than it is, you know, for your YouTube audience. Great, it might not work as well for the podcast, but go for it. Well, we and, can and we can we can narrate. I was going to say narrate over it. You know, yeah. talk a little bit about that. I know what you mean by super pedestrian, but I'm sure a lot of people uh, do not. So let's hit put play yeah, on this yeah, and yeah. feel free. Yeah. So we're seeing like a we shot this in Red Hook in Brooklyn. So you're seeing a lot of sort of city scene. And yeah, and you heard that New York is our city. Like one of the things that I wanted to do with this video was to say that, you know, scooter users and cyclists are not like some foreign species that invades your city. They're, they're members of your city. They are New Yorkers. And so that's why we had all these people saying New York is, is our city. New York, we are, it's our city. Um, and we had to hit a couple of notes like obey traffic laws and ride the right direction, right? The stuff that city governments want you to be able to say and that's important, respect pedestrians, things like that, stay off the sidewalk. But um, we wanted to have a little fun with it and uh, really hit that note of like, these are real New Yorkers who are going to use this service, in this case, Link Scooters. Right. 
Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And I kind of know a little bit of the backstory with this particular company, but uh, uh, why don't you kind of, you know, share with the audience, you know, sort of who's behind uh, this company and why it's kind of special for for those of you in in uh, in New York? Yeah, so um, Link Scooters is started by if if you if your listeners are familiar with the Copenhagen wheel, which turned regular bikes into e-bikes, it was this red thing that attached to the wheel. Um, it's founded by the same people, and they've been really good. They've put a lot of tech into you know sidewalk detection, speed governing, things like that. You know, the, the problem a lot of scooter companies have had is that the first generation of scooter companies just dumped a million of these things on sidewalks right. with no uh, understanding of how they might be received, or, or maybe some, <laughs> and um, it generated a lot of ill will. And so, super pedestrian. One of the reasons I liked working with them is that they were really focused on like making sure they were doing this right. And Paul Steely White, former executive director of Transportation Alternatives, and a friend, you know, he and I connected over this video, and I think we share that same sort of thing of like, look, when you live in a city. You know, we talk a lot in advocacy circles of like making sure that we're putting the focus where it belongs on the system designers, on cars, on drivers. But there's like little things of courtesy that can go a long way when you live in a city. Like I, I firmly believe in chain from the top down and system, but like I don't ride through the city like a jerk. I would never park my bike in a curb ramp or something like that. And so this video was sort of meant to, to do that of like, hey, New Yorkers, this is coming. We yeah. know it's going to be awesome. And like, if you just are like cool and good to other people, it'll go even better. Yeah. 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 It's funny. Uh, Fark uh, just, just uh, said, you know, the tiny wheels on those death traps uh, scare the hell out of me. <laughs> I had the same, I had the same feeling before I rode one and then I rode one. And this is a, I think like super pedestrian does a good job with this. And I'm honestly not just saying this because I work with them, but you know, full disclosure. Yeah. Um, I felt pretty st- pretty stable on that thing. It's got a wide platform. You know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest guy in the world. And I felt like pretty heavy and like, I wasn't going to topple over. So yes, yeah. you know, it all depends. Well, and, and you mentioned Paul Steely White and he, you know, he is somebody who uh, obviously put in, you know, he cut his teeth at transportation alternatives and, and many, many years. And uh, clearly when he made that move over there, it was one of the first things that I, that I started hearing was that this is all about um, creating a safer ride. And so they were really looking at that wider platform, those bigger wheels, a little bit more shock absorption, you know, safety features. And, and then really, as you mentioned, really working with the cities to make sure that, you know, it, it's, it, it, they're being good stewards of of, yes. uh, of that service. And I will say, so. putting my war on cars hat on, yeah. the tech that's going into these scooters by really like these brilliant, thoughtful people at companies like Super Pedestrian ought to be going into cars. You know, speed governors, right. GPS locators that say like, well, you're on a sidewalk now, so slow down, stop. Um, but, you know, hopefully this tech can and will make it way to make its way to to cars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have a, a question here from George. He's uh, asking about uh, parking day and and how to be able to, um, you know, basically get more support for it. Um, I mean, I think just talk to those business owners. I, I do think open streets, which we've seen in, you know, under the banner of slow streets, open streets, healthy streets in lots of cities, um, has opened the door now to more of these conversations, because let's say a business doesn't have, isn't on an open street or doesn't have 
you know, an outdoor dining area in front of them, they're at least aware that these things exist in a way that, I mean, the fact that we're talking about open streets now, which used to be one of those um, inside baseball urbanist terms, and now everybody just calls them open streets. So I would say just talk to business owners and say, you know, if there's a coffee shop or something that you happen to frequent, hey, do you mind if we set up in front of your in front of your business for, for a day for this thing called parking day, explain to them what it is. I think you'd probably get, if it's just a one-off, like they'd be, sure. Yeah. You know, and if they, if they say no, go to the next one, but um, there's much more awareness of this now than there ever has been. I think it's a great time to reach out. Businesses used to be the hardest thing to reach out to. It used to be so hard because those business owners would say, oh no, my customers all park here. But the pandemic and outdoor dining and all the rest has shown, well, actually you might want to engage the people who don't feel comfortable sitting inside. Can we do something outside? I think they'll be pretty open to it. Yeah. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer, but I'm optimistic about those. At the the local level, I really think things have never been better at the individual level. Yeah. And, you know, and, and ultimately it's kind of the same discussion too of, you know, that curb space, that, that space in front of your business, whether it's a coffee shop or a pub or a restaurant or whatever it is, uh, you know, would you, would you rather as a business owner have like one motor vehicle, you know, park there? And if there's no, uh, if there's, if it's not paid parking, you know, if you haven't, if they, if the city hasn't embraced Donald Shoop's the high cost of free parking and have dynamic parking so that there's continuous turnover, uh, you could have one person show up, park there and walk away, never visit your business. And so it's not even useful space for you. Well, I I mean, I think yeah, I mean, the potential for like 12 bikes showing up there. The problem is, I I, I say this all the time. Number one, the people who are more like to, likely to drive to that business might be the business owner themselves, right? Because it's expensive to live in a lot of cities, you know, Austin, New York, San Francisco. And so small business owners might not be able to afford to live in the communities that they serve. And so sometimes the biggest opposition to losing parking is because the uh, business owner needs that spot. Um, number two, the thing that I always say is like, look, if you, if you cycle to a business, if you walk to a business, or if you take transit and walk to a business, you walk in, you buy your coffee, maybe you have a pleasant interaction with the barista, the person behind the counter, and you say, have a nice day, and you're on your way. Um, If you drove there, and the parking is horrendous, and you were specifically coming to that spot, and you happen to speak to the owner, you might say, oh man, the parking just took forever. What the heck is going on around here? You would complain. And um, that can get into business owners' heads and because the only people who say anything about how they got there are the drivers. And they, it leads them to an impression that the people who come to their store drive. But there's study after study that shows that, dri- that business owners really overestimate the number of people who arrive by car. And so you know, to go back to the earlier question, another thing that people advocates can do is uh, intercept surveys. Talk to people as they're coming in to uh, businesses on a particular block or a commercial corridor and ask them, how'd you get here? Um, You know, drove solo, took the bus, rode my bicycle, walked and present that data to the city, to the business owners, to a bid and say, see, like if we made it slightly easier for people to walk and bike here, you would be enhancing the experience of the majority of your customers anyway and attracting more. So a couple of definitions here. Uh, you just said bid there. So uh, business improvement district. Right, um, right, and right. Another definition. Um, we had a question here. Uh, what is parking day? You want to take that? 
Yeah. So parking day was, I don't remember exactly when it was started, but it was to start, it was started by this urban design group called Rebar in San Francisco. And they literally would just take things like AstroTurf and beach chairs or whatever, plop a few quarters in a parking meter and set up. They were sort of like open streets and open restaurants before most people knew what those things were. And so it was like a, a very humorous and effective act of, uh, I wouldn't say protest, but just a, a really good uh, visible demonstration that parking spaces could be used for something more than parking cars. And it happens every September, I believe. Um, and so one's coming up pretty soon. And it's a lot of fun. I highly recommend people get involved, look it up and maybe do one in your own neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Uh, one last question uh, regarding scooters uh, from a, a cat with a face here is uh, asking, uh, yes, how can we as advocates attempt to change the narrative on scooters as a democratizing force? Yeah, I think the best example I can come up with is when City Bike launched in New York City in 2013. Um, Streets blog, which was then being edited by Ben Freed, um, I think they, they sent a photographer, Dimitri Goodkoff, out to various places, uh, Grand Central being one of them. And he took a lot of pictures of just regular people, you know, getting off the train or getting off the subway and hopping on a bike and asking them why they were choosing city bike. And so you had everything from like suburban commuters to people coming from upper Manhattan to senior citizens, just like out exploring the city for the day. And I think that, you know, just showing, like I said before, you can show as many statistics and studies as you want about who's using it, the, this demographic, this age group, whatever. But if you go out and you just like flood the zone with pictures and video and say, no, actually, like, here's this nurse who gets off the bus at the Port Authority and she uses a bike share or a scooter to go across town to the hospital because it saves her a slow bus transfer or expensive taxi ride. Um that's, I think, the most effective way to do it. Tell real stories of real people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, good stuff here. Uh, Mark Kramer, uh, who I know uh, happens to live in the uh, the Paris uh, area, I think it's the, the same Mark Kramer. There is a Mark Kramer there in Paris, uh, has, has a question here for you. Please restore, or, or comment, uh, please restore stickball on the streets. As kids, uh, we did a great job of uh, being human stop signs. <laughs> <laughs> My dad grew up in the Bronx, and he has good memories of playing stickball in the street. Yeah. I find it funny. Sometimes the biggest opposition to like giving the streets back to people comes from the sort of like older end of the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, don't you guys remember what the That's streets what used did. to be like? That's what you do. Don't you want that for the kids who live in the city today? Yeah. I would like more. I'm in favor of more stickball. Yeah. Yeah. yeah good stuff. So one of the things that uh, you and I wanted to do is uh, do a little bit of a retrospective, taking a look back to, uh, you know, what has really transpired um, with our respective uh, podcasts in the last uh, eight months or so. And for me, it's, it's about in sync with what season three was. Um, and, uh, and for you, I'm, I'm not sure where you are at, wh whether you do seasons or not, but we don't uh, do seasons. We okay. just, the, You're the just freight going. train just keeps rolling you down the track. We going. can't stop you just it. Keep yeah. going. But yeah. looking back on this, this past, uh, eight months, are there any particular episodes that really resonate for you? Um, I'm going to, can I start with yours? Is that all right? 
Can I compliment you sure. first? Are you kidding? Okay. Go for it. Um, so you, there's, I'm going to name three. You had Natalia Barber on from TU Delft, who's probably one of the smartest, just, she has a great way of explaining these concepts. Like any class that she's taking, I wish that I could be a graduate student in it because she's really brilliant. Her social media presence is really smart too. So your interview with her was really illuminating and uh, made me want to go back to Delft. Sam Balto and the bike bus, the, the school bike bus in Portland. I've met Sam. He's a great guy. I think that the kind of action that he's doing is like arguably among the most important type of advocacy you can do. Show We talked about like, how can you show scooters as a democratizing force? Well, how can you show bikes as a democratizing force? A bunch of kids going to school on their own power. Um, so I love what Sam is doing. So even though I was already aware of what he was doing, hearing him, you know, talk to you was was great. And then um, we have an overlap, I think, which was like one of my favorite episodes of The War on Cars and, and one of yours, Jesse Singer and her book, There Are No Accidents, yeah. which yeah. I mean, I could do a whole podcast talking about Jesse and that book. That book was so transformational in my thinking and I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time, as have you. I can only imagine what it must feel like to someone who's a little less initiated into these issues. You know, she really got me thinking bigger picture, systems-based solutions to problems, moving away from individual blame and behavior as much as we have to sometimes play that political game and put that out there. I, I can't recall a book in this world that had as much of an impact like I said, a transformative impact. It absolutely changed the wiring in my brain when yeah. I respond to a story about this. So we also had her on and I, I, it could have been 10 times as long. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's, uh, that, th those are my sort of favorites of, of yours, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, and, uh, and, and funny enough, I mean, looking back on, on the past, uh, you know, a few months, eight months, those are some of my favorites too. <laughs> and they, just, they sort of hit yeah, like all powerful. the different aspects of what I think we're all trying to do here, which is like, there's the academic policy-based side of it. You know, there's the, there's the sort of more like cultural stuff that Jesse's trying to change. And then there's just the like street level, neighborhood community level change that we need to have happen. So it's, it, I feel like it was the trifecta of episodes for me. Yeah, and I'm going to pull up uh, uh, Natalia's uh, Twitter feed here. Um, if you're not all, already following uh, Natalia, Dr. Natalia Barber from TU Delft. She only has 8,600 followers, which is criminal. It should be it's like 86,000, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, again, if it's if it's hard to see that on your screen, it's it's Natalia underscore Barber uh, is her, her Twitter handle. So please, you know, go follow. Um, I'll also include uh, in the show notes and in the link uh, for the video, I'll go back in and make sure that the, the links are in for my interviews with uh, with Jesse, with Sam, and also with Natalia. So, okay, let's yeah. shift gears. Uh, your favorite from your own podcast. Um, okay, so one of my favorites, um, my co-host Sarah Goodyear and I went to the International Auto Show at the Javits Center in Manhattan. And um, so we have an episode called Infiltrating the Auto Show. It's the second time we've done this. Aaron went a couple of years ago be uh, before the pandemic. And um, Sarah and I, yeah, there's a picture that we were issued press credentials that literally say our names, Doug Gordon and the war on cars. So whatever 
it's probably was like a robot or, you know, AI that issued these press credentials and didn't quite figure out like, hmm, maybe this isn't the best idea. We went in there and we talked to the reps from Ford, from Stellantis, which makes Dodge, Ram and, and the Charger and kind of got them in their own words to explain and almost excuse away the, the very aggressive marketing language that they use and the design of the, the trucks and the cars that they put out there. So I spoke to a rep from Ford about the Raptor, the sort of like spe- special edition of the Raptor, which is related to the Jeep in some ways and related to other SUVs. And he was using language about like, yeah, isn't this menacing? This thing is just so intimidating. And yes, some people will be out there using these cars to go like forge a river and go to you know Utah and go off-roading or whatever. But the majority of these people who uh, buy cars like this are going to be shopping at Whole Foods and Kroger and using it to drive their kids to school. And so I kind of pushed and said, you know, like, is any consideration given to the people outside of the car? This thing will, you know, I'm I'm five eight. This thing came up to like my head, uh, the front of the truck. I also spoke to a rep from Dodge, who, you know, I asked him to describe the car, and, and the phrase that he used was like, you know, when you're in this thing, this thing, you own the road. And I pushed him on that phrase, own the road, because, you know, I'm sure. We are in agreement when you are out on the road, you don't own it. You share it with other people and you have a responsibility not to kill them. That's the, the barest minimum that we can ask for of people. And he really leaned into that. Like, you know, people, when I'm driving this thing, people pull up to me and they want to race me. I'm like, these are public streets. Do you really think that's appropriate? And there was a lot of marketing mumbo jumbo. And, you know, I didn't expect him to suddenly say like, oh, gee, you're right. I'm going to quit my job and go get a job at transportation alternatives. I've What have I done with my life? But we never really get a chance to confront the car industry about their products. We They just show up on your streets and they have all of these negative consequences for people who aren't in them, for people who are in them too. But it was a really good chance for us to to bring, bring the fight directly to the belly of the beast, I, I should say. And so that was really one of my favorites. My co-host Aaron Napperstek also did an interview uh, about Tesla with Ed Niedermeyer, who is um, a journalist, and about how Tesla is essentially kind of like a fraud, basically. And that's the title of the episode. It's, you know, how Elon Musk is just playing this sort of con game, essentially. And I highly recommend people listen to that one. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to love the fact that, you know, you, you picked this, uh, you were able to grab this uh, image here. Yep. They, they blocked the crosswalk in the auto. Yeah. Show they had all of these like movie set type things of like cars in nature, cars in simulated city environments, even though we're on the West side of Manhattan and there was a car parked in a fake crosswalk, which I thought was like, uh, the verisimilitude was just perfect. They couldn't have asked for a better chef's kiss of, of, uh, of depictions there. <laughs> okay, what's next on your uh, your your top list? Um, what's we do an annual Super Bowl episode, and we had um, Amy Westervelt on. If you if your listeners are not familiar with Amy, Amy uh, does a bunch of podcasts um, related to climate change. One of which is called Drilled, and her focus on some of her podcasts is all about propaganda about the effort by oil companies over the years to really distract 
and throw out all this in- misinformation about climate change and the effect of of petroleum, of burning fossil fuels on the environment. And she is really deeply educated about propaganda dating back to you know World War II and before, and how after World War II that filtered its way into Madison Avenue. And so we analyze, we've, this is an annual episode for us, we analyze all of the ads on the Super Bowl this year, filtered through uh, Amy's expertise of propaganda and how it all works. So that was that's a really fun one to do. I actually think like of all of our episodes, this one in some ways gets to the heart of what the War of Cars is because it had the history, sort of where things came from. There's some policy in there, but we're really talking about cars as a cultural problem to be solved. Yeah, yeah. And here, here's that. And again, uh, folks, if you just go to the the, the website, thewaroncars.org, you can uh, you know scroll through and take a look at this area. And obviously, if you're subscribed uh, on your preferred listening platform, uh, you get served up each each new episode. And uh, and again, that uh, episode that came out this week with uh, with Marley was just so delightful. Yeah, to, she to was she to. was great. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Okay, what's next? What's next? So, you know, I think, I, I don't know if you have this problem, but we, we tend to have more, more ideas than we, uh, than we can reasonably pu- publish and produce in a specific amount of time. But, uh, you know, I'm working, uh, we all, Aaron and I will joke that we have these sort of like white whale-ish episodes that like we want to keep working on, but our story is always beyond the horizon of something that we can finish. Uh, Aaron actually has a great one coming uh, on muscle cars. He, you know, drag racing has really taken off during the pandemic as, yeah. as roads emptied out of regular traffic and a lot of people are, are racing. He did some ride-alongs with some folks who race through New York and got their perspective on why they do what they do and what it means to them. I think that's going to be a fantastic one. I have been working on an episode for a really long time about um, bikes and the apocalypse, about, you know, how okay. in, you know, there's the disaster trials that you sometimes see in Portland, Portland right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, bikes are a really good and nimble tool for uh, dealing with disasters, for reaching people in places that cars and ambulances can't get to. So I'm kind of taking the premise, which you've probably seen in other places, of like, why are there not more bikes in zombie movies or movies about the apocalypse? Yeah. Um, if you saw Station Eleven on HBO, they're all moving around in horse-drawn cars and trucks, yeah. which leads me to the question of like, if it's so hard to find food in this post-apocalyptic future, how are the horses getting fed? So I kind of want to, I'm exploring that question of like, what place do bikes have in popular culture and reality in terms of dealing with disaster? Yeah. 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 So that's sort of my, that's my big epic that's my that's my white whale. <laughs> that's yeah. your 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 white whale and what you're working yeah. on. That's good stuff. And uh, let's see, Doug uh, Gins, Grinsberg here uh, said the Tesla uh, episode was fascinating. I agree, it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that, and happy to hear from a fellow Doug. The Aaron that interview is great. Ed's book is really good, and looked like you know. Electric cars are important. Tesla has done a lot to change the culture and the acceptance of electric cars. My prediction is that given the head start in terms of manufacturing and all the rest that Ford, General Motors, the other car companies have, Tesla's kind of status at the top of the heap here is not going to last very long. Um, And especially because of its very problematic chief executive, you know, Elon Musk is a big problem. 
Yeah, but yeah, yeah. thank you. And uh, Vincenzo here, uh, also uh, chiming in from the Netherlands, uh, is basically saying, you know, I, I'm in the Netherlands and like most Dutch, I love my car. Uh, it, and it's even resprayed, rebuilt, uh, upgraded 34-year-old car, uh, but I ride a bicycle uh, every day <laughs> to work. And, uh, you know, I just, I love bikes more than cars. So it's it's not an either or thing. I mean, it's you there there's there's room in our hearts for for all of this. We're yeah, just really I mean, it's a war on car dependency more than on cars. Yes, the analogy or the metaphor that I like to use I compare mobility to a Swiss army knife, you know, that you've got your big blade for the like whittling a stick, you have a screwdriver, you've got the little tweezers. Uh, you just have to use the right tool for the job and, and cars are not always the right tool for the job. And so, yeah, so this, I wrote an article for Jalopnik, which is a car-based website, about what I mean when I say ban cars. And to that point of like people who love their cars, but maybe use their bike a bit more for their daily needs, that's exactly it. It's not a war on cars. If you, if you love your car, great. If you want the big house in the suburbs with the two-car garage and you enjoy driving and maybe dealing with traffic now and then, fine, who cares? It's not on me to tell you what to do. But, you know, we see from the popularity of cycling, we see from how expensive, walkable, livable, bikeable cities are, that there's great demand for these places. So when I say, you know, ban cars, I don't mean ban all cars at all times. There are people who need them. There are people with mobility issues. There are trips you can't make on a bicycle or by transit. What I mean is ban cars in this specific circumstance on this particular street under these conditions, right? A good way to think about it is time. Uh, we have open streets that happen on weekends and Memorial Drive in Cambridge, Massachusetts is closed to cars on weekends. So there's like a time-based ban on cars. It's open at other times. That could move to a permanent ban on cars. We banned cars in parts of Times Square. You know, we, we changed the grid through Broadway so that we got rid of that diagonal slant where Broadway intersects the different avenues. It's about rethinking how we prioritize this tool because that's all a car is, you know, ultimately, as much as I talk about it being a cultural object, it's a tool to help you get places. And it's not always going to be the best tool at every time for every trip. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Oh, so, yeah. And this, I should say, sorry, this article, I think was like the engagement on this thing was, you can see there were 245 comments before they had to close it out. Definitely. And it got a ton of engagement because I think there's just more openness to this discussion now. And yeah. obviously, ban cars is a very provocative statement in the same way the war on cars is a very provocative title. But I'm all in favor of <laughs> more provocative discussions. It, it helps move the needle. At least it gets that that conversation going, and and again, as I just mentioned it, it's 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 really it's it's not a, a anything against cars per se, although especially when they're overbuilt and, and massive in size, they can be quite destructive. It, it really is, in my mind, a war on car dependency. And, and I think that that gets to this particular comment that basically says, just give the ability to make a choice in North America. A car is pretty much required, so you don't even get to make a choice. Right, yeah. I mean, I talk about this a lot, this notion of freedom, right? People say that cars are freedom, but like, what freedom do you really have if you live in a place 
where you can choose any way you want to get to work. You can bike, you can walk, you can take a car, but if you bike, you're going to get killed. If you walk, there's no way to cross a massive highway or strode. And so that's all it is. It's about enabling choice. I drive, I, you know, my family and I will go visit, go visit grandparents. So we'll go camping and we rent a car for such situations. I mostly take the subway if I'm going into Manhattan, but sometimes I bike, I walk around the neighborhood. I have incredible freedom in that sense. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, it's about freedom of choice. Yeah. And it's kind of, uh, relevant to this little, uh, uh, graphic that you have here for us. Yeah. So there was a column that probably a, a bunch of people saw by Ross Douthat at the New York times where you talked about, you know, that the original title that was put up there, it was since changed is if you don't drive, how else do you belong to America? And I found this, that framing alone to be so wrong. If you don't drive children in our society, don't drive. If you have mobility issues or are disabled, you don't drive. Uh, you know, if you let's say you suddenly were diagnosed with epilepsy, right? <laughs> you don't drive. Um, some people can't afford a car. Uh, other people are too old and have lost the ability to drive safely. There's all sorts of people who don't drive for various reasons. Some related to choice. Some it's imposed upon them. And the idea that those people don't belong, quote unquote, to America, is just so silly. Like it, it, it to me, it's sort of like. You know, when the New York Times goes on these expeditions to a diner in Iowa to talk to, quote unquote, real Americans, like are New Yorkers not real Americans, you know, are taxpaying citizens of Los Angeles not real Americans? So the idea that if you don't own a car, look, it's a great skill to have. Driving is a great skill to have. It's still necessary in most of this country. It is a great way to see a lot of this country, but that is not the driving that most Americans do. Most Americans don't do what Ross Douthat was explaining, a cross-country trip where they go to national parks and they see the vast expanses of Wyoming or whatever it is. I've done that trip. That trip's amazing. I've taken long camping trips and long road trips. I love those trips. I would hate, and I know I would hate because I've lived in places like this, trips where I have to just go 20 minutes to the nearest grocery store to get groceries. That's the kind of driving most Americans do. And it sucks. Right. And even people who love their cars will tell you it sucks. Yeah. Um, and you can love your car and you can love driving, but hate most of the types of driving that Americans do. And that's yeah. what we want to change. Like you want your big road trip? Great. Go have it. But yeah. wouldn't it be great to have an option to just walk to the corner and, you know, you're out of paper towels and you go buy some paper towels? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And as somebody who's about ready to embark on a, on a big road trip myself, uh, driving from here up to Colorado so I can spend two weeks up there doing some uh, filming and interviewing. And again, this is the season uh, finale for season three, folks. I will be taking about three weeks off from the podcast, but I will be pushing out content uh, from Colorado. So I'll be on the road. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, but yeah, it's the only reason why we still have that old car that sits in the driveway 90% of the time is that occasionally I'll I'll, I'll pull up stakes and, and do that. And I don't have a legitimate alternative option other than flying, which I just kind of don't want to do. Uh, it would literally take me uh, nearly three days to take a train from from Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's to, a whole to, separate to podcast Denver. episode about the sorry state of trains in the United States. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. But hey, I've, I've got a report for uh, for you from uh, Fark Stein here, um, also from the Netherlands. He says that the, uh, the the dug density is very high there in the Netherlands. And, and oh, that's we're, interesting. We're, we're experiencing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this this is a graphic and this is an episode that I enjoyed, uh, but you also had uh, you know highlighted this uh, this episode. Uh, what, what's going on in, in in this particular episode? What's this all? Yeah, about? so um, one of my favorite moments of the last year, just culturally, was the Reddit group r slash fuck cars. I can swear we can swear on this on this show, right? Bleep it I out here later. So, if not, yeah. we're in trouble. <laughs> okay. Um, and it's just this incredible group of people who share memes and share news stories and are really, you know, into a lot of the issues that we're talking about here and are, are you know, everywhere from the most rabid anti-car person to sort of like, hey, cars have their place, but sort of philosophy. And there was a subreddit called r slash place. And they were basically putting up a big uh, digital canvas where anybody from different, anybody who is a Reddit member could place a pixel um, to create different images. Now, the, what I loved about it was that no one person could place a pixel enough times to really affect any sort of change in the overall graphic image. But different subreddits would come together and say, hey, all like, let's make this image. And so you had political symbols, you had cartoon characters, you had all kinds of meme style graphics. But the r slash fuck cars folks got together and they made in the middle of this canvas, this digital canvas, they all got together and made a big black parking lot. And the purpose was really to show how spatially inefficient cars are and how much space they take up relative to other things. And um, I loved everything about it. It was humorous. It made the point better than a hundred page white paper on transportation could ever make. And I loved the community aspect of it. Because like I said, no one person could affect enough change to do anything. But if everybody from a subreddit got together and did this, they could put this graphic out there. And I just, I just loved it. I thought it was so funny. And so we, we talked about it on an ep- a sort of news roundup that we called, they paved our slash place and put up a parking lot. So, you know, I, I tip my hat to the, the fuck cars subreddit. I, I don't post there really ever, but I lurk and I, I learn and I am entertained and educated. Yeah. So I haven't dipped my toe into, into uh, Reddit. And, we just might be too that. old. It's fine. It's all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, a, a couple of quick uh, comments here. Uh, you know, Mark Kramer uh, jumps in and says that echoing what Doug just said, uh, most of our friends here in Paris have cars. Uh, they do not use the car for errands or commuting, only for vacations and emergencies. Uh, so I, I think that's that's kind of what we're echoing there. And yeah. uh, we also comment on my my, my Colorado trip. Uh, RJH00 is like, oh, Colorado, will you meet up with Ryan Van Duzer? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, Ryan and I are going to uh, meet up for the Thursday night cruiser ride. So we'll uh, uh, be able to get out on cruiser bikes, uh, at least for the first Thursday when I am there. He is still in town. And then after that, he has to pull up stakes and head out to uh, Burning Man. So that's good. And then Doug Green, Gin, Doug Grinsberg, sorry, Doug, uh, free Denver area RTD bus and uh, trains through uh, August. Absolutely. In fact, I'm going to be uh, jumping on the, the bus uh, from Boulder down to Denver to do a bunch of filming 
uh, down in the Denver area for Bicycle Colorado uh, next week. So it, all good stuff. So yeah. Uh, so as we start to, to wind down a little bit here, Doug, is there anything that we haven't yet talked about that you really want us to address? I think we, we haven't mentioned uh, our, our brand new mayor. He's not so new anymore. Eric Adams here in New York. Um, you know, uh, we it's been it was a long eight years with Mayor de Blasio with some successes, a lot of failures, you know, successes being the launch of Vision Zero, failures being and not really delivering on the on the promise. Right. And so, you know, Eric Adams has taken office and there's a lot of potential. He certainly bikes. He made a big show of once he was elected, getting on a bike to come to some events. And after he took office, riding bikes around, there's a picture up here of him in a suit on a city bike with an aide of his. And um, I think my, my co-host Aaron said his prediction is that Eric Adams will be a mayor who bikes. He won't necessarily be a biking mayor. Like, you know, we, we we're still waiting for that American and Hidalgo. I think that might be Michelle Wu in Boston more than anybody else, but it certainly, it probably won't be Eric Adams. He has done some good stuff. They're experimenting with new bike lane barriers, but these are the kinds of things that other cities were already doing. So it's not really innovative or new. It's just New York kind of catching up. He's certainly saying the right things. I just don't, I'm not sure he's going to go far enough given climate change, given congestion, given the challenges that we have um, as a city, as a country, as a planet. So um, the, the verdict is out so far uh, on Adams. I'd like to have a stronger report from New York. And you know, the thing about New York, and I, I don't like to engage in this New York City exceptionalism, but I will acknowledge that what we do in New York matters because, you know, our media, our national media is based here for the most part. And so, you know, a bridge with a bike lane is not a new thing in most of the world. But when you put a, a bike lane on the Brooklyn Bridge, mm -hmm. it makes headlines and it shows the cities that haven't yet done something like that. Well, if they can put a bike lane on the Brooklyn Bridge, surely we can put a bike lane on this bridge in our city. So, you know, New York, I think, is really far behind, criminally so, compared to London and Paris, especially Paris, compared to Montreal, Mayor Val Plant. And so, yeah, we have a lot to do. So that, that's sort of where we are with Mayor Adams. It's like the jury's out. Yeah, 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 the jury's out. Now you just enlisted some some other uh, key cities uh, in in uh, in looking at London and also Paris, and and that ties into another initiative that you're in, involved with. Uh, I know you haven't been doing a lot of active work on it recently, but you're getting ready to ramp back up on it. Uh, talk yeah. a little bit about car-free megacities. Yeah, this is a great campaign. Leo Murray at a climate foundation called Possible in the UK reached out to me and asked if I'd like to be involved with this. So Car Free Megacities is a campaign with activists in London, Paris, and me here in New York. And it's sort of like a friendly competition between the three cities to really show what's working, what's not working. What are the effects of building a city for people? Uh, and, and, you know, London, Paris, and New York have advantages because they're already largely car-free. 54% uh, of households in New York City are car-free. The graphic that we are putting up here shows that in Manhattan, that goes as high as 77%. In my neighborhood, I think it's around, it's well over 50%. You know, Paris, the majority of people in sort of the inner ring of Paris, they are car-free. Same with London, 61%. So these are cities where it wouldn't take much to make transformative change. And we're seeing that 
in Paris. And we've seen that with the expansion of the ultra low emission zone in London. New York is still debating, waiting to implement congestion pricing. Um, hopefully that will happen and have a huge effect. But we don't yet have the leadership that we need compared to Paris, compared to London to do that. So I'm doing a lot of work with them, doing some content writing for them, um, getting them, you know, gathering da data. And it's a great team, great group of people. I mean, the, the wonderful and beautiful thing about the work that you do, that I do, um, that so many people who are probably watching this is just the shared interest we have in making our cities better connects us to so many people around the world. And um, I'm very grateful for that. So the work that I've been doing with, with Car Free Megacities has been very gratifying. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and 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 Clarence, uh, and just we, we chimed in, and and it's great to have Clarence <laughs> up, here. Speaking speaking of uh, f uh, awesome stuff happening in the the New York City area, yeah. um, you know, for for those uh, listening into this, uh, make sure that you uh, check out Street Films out on the uh, the YouTube uh, channel out there. Street Films is putting together and has been putting together. Clarence, was, Clarence was, is the best. He's part of my origin story into. How I got involved with this, I, yeah. you know, I was already a little involved with some safe street stuff, but I used to go running in Prospect Park, which was open to cars yeah. and it was supposed to be closed to cars from 7 p.m. on, which whole story. And it wasn't. And I shot a video showing cars coming into the park after 7 p.m. and how long it took to get cars out of the park. Yeah. And I you know, didn't know what I was doing. And I had like, I don't know, 15 minutes worth of video and got in touch with Clarence because I was familiar with his work and he and I talked and he grabbed that footage and turned it in his artful Clarence way with humor into like a really quick two or three minute video that made the point better than I ever could have. Um, so talk about connecting with incredible people doing amazing work. You know, I'm grateful for that connection to Clarence. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and Clarence said, oh yeah, that was the third street, uh, video and, and he did re-edit that. Uh, so, you know, that's huge. And Clarence, you have been incredibly supportive of me, uh, making the move over into, into YouTube here and producing videos, uh, for a while there, I was just for about five years, I was just producing videos and putting it out on the Vimeo channel. And so, you know, get really doubling down and, and getting YouTube content out. He, along with Ryan Van Duzer, Mark Wagenberg uh, from Bicycle yeah. Dutch, even Jason Slaughter from Not Just Bikes. These are the, the the folks that have really helped me out a great deal in terms of uh, being able to to move this content along and, and really grow the audience. I and have an interview coming with Mark Wagenberg in the fall. I did, did I was in the Netherlands last year, and uh, the the premise of this episode actually is that Utrecht. You know, we talk a lot about Amsterdam, but that Utrecht is really the city that people should be learning from. Obviously, there are other Dutch cities that like Delft that have a lot to learn from. But if you really sort of had to make, if you only could make one stop in the Netherlands and wanted to learn as much as possible about the vision that we all have, I think Utrecht is the place. And so Mark served as a kind of tour guide and interview subject for my, my experience there. And it was great. So look for that soon. I hope. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, in Utrecht is a, a wonderful example to, uh, to, to reinforce this concept that, uh, and, and the meme that is out there of, hey, Amsterdam wasn't always Amsterdam and Utrecht, which is arguably probably one of the most bicycle friendly uh, cities in the entire world is that, uh, you know, 
they had their challenges too. They just yeah. now finally uh, brought their canal back to life. Uh, they paved it over. They turned one of their canals into a highway and, and now it's been converted back to a canal. And I did have a chance to, to talk uh, with Billy Fields, Dr. Billy Fields, uh, about that topic. And Mark has a wonderful video about yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. And, uh, and as if I, if I remember correctly, one of the most popular videos of all time for Clarence uh, Eckerson was the Utrecht video. So it's uh, incredible. It's yeah. just an incredible city. You know, I think the thing is people go to Amsterdam and certainly if you go sort of outside the historic canal rings, if you're nerds like me and want to go to industri an industrial area to see how they manage traffic and bike lanes there, you can do that. But most Americans go to Amsterdam and it's, you know, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's not, the streets are not analogous to any you're going to find really in the United States. The buildings are different. But if you step off the train in Utrecht, you are next to a suburban style shopping mall. There are office towers. There is, of course, the historic center of, of Utrecht, which is really close by. But you are out in some pretty wide streets and regular neighborhoods pretty quickly. And I really think it has so much to teach uh, North Americans about what's possible in their own cities. I, like I said, if you could, if you only had two days and could only go to one Dutch city and wanted to learn as much as possible, just go there. Yeah. And, uh, it, and one of the uh, recommendations that are, is popped up here uh, is uh, from Joost is, is get it to, to Groningen. Uh, Groningen is, is absolutely fantastic and it's getting better and better and better. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a little I think far. it's Groningen. I'm trying to work on my Dutch. Yeah, yeah. They don't have those hard Gs. Yeah. Sorry, um, guys. Sorry. <laughs> Duolingo. Duolingo. Sorry. Um, um, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. But, you know, I think... The, the Netherlands is a good place to go. And I think the work that like Chris and Melissa Bruntlett do yeah. that Jason does with not just bikes is um, it's myth busting, which is its own form of storytelling. And uh, the both sets of people are exceptional at, at doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And Fark, uh, Fark says a lot of Dutchies actually feel like Utrecht is waging a war against God. Yes, yes. And uh, Andy, uh, uh, you know, uh, chimes in and says, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's great. Well, hey, you know, we, you know that we could just continue this forever, but we've yes. already been going for an hour. So uh, we're going to have to tragically bring this to a close. And uh, I, I just want to say sincerely to everybody who has tuned in, thank you so very much for, for joining us uh, on this War on Cars <laughs> episode <laughs> of the Active Towns podcast. I really do appreciate it. And Doug, uh, you know, second time on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me once again. Uh, one of these days I'll be like Tom Hanks is to Saturday Night Live. I will be to Active Towns to the podcast. It's a true pleasure and a real honor to be invited back. And like always a pleasure to talk to you, whether virtually or in person. Fantastic. Well, Doug, you just hang right there and I'm going to close this out for, for everybody. Uh, again, thank you so very much for, for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. And a reminder, uh, this is the season finale. I will be taking about two to three weeks off. I'll be traveling up to Colorado to do some filming up there and uh, uh, conducting some interviews. So I'll be back in September, uh, probably mid-September or so, and uh, we'll, we'll do it all again. Again, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give it a thumbs up. Uh, please subscribe to the channel 
if you're not already uh, have not already subscribed, and uh, be sure to ring that notifications bell down there. Uh, that gives you the ability to uh, customize what your notification preferences are. And uh, if you'd like to support uh, this channel, please pop on over to our website at activetowns.org and just click on the support uh, tab there. Uh, there's an opportunity to buy me a coffee, <laughs> become a Patreon supporter, or if uh, if it's important for you to support a nonprofit, uh, Advocates for Healthy Communities is my nonprofit, and I have a separate fund set up for that. So, you know, pop on over there and, and do that. Uh, again, thank you so very much. Uh, until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. <laughs>